BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to introduce my colleague, honored friend, the host of the Joe Madison Show weekdays, 6 to 10 a.m. right here on Sirius XM. But he's on channel 126. We're on 127 here, I believe. The civil and human rights, lifelong civil and human rights activist, Joe Madison. His website, joemadison.com. You can tweet him at MadisonSiriusXM. And Joe, welcome back to the program. It's so nice to have you on, particularly on this auspicious day. Well, I really appreciate it. And I also let people know that I just celebrated 43 years with Sherry. That's our um, wedding anniversary. Oh, and wow. she she reminded me, she reminded me last Friday in the court, she said this is the first time because of this pandemic that we've actually been together because usually we're tra- I'm traveling and somewhere in honor of Dr. King or to continue his work. So something good came out of the pandemic, because unlike you, we broadcast with our spouses. To tell the truth, Tom, you know we need to tell the truth. They run the show. So yeah. I know Louise runs it, and Sherry runs <laughs> You're absolutely the right, show. Joe. So, and, hey, I just tell them, she's management, I'm labor. So, <laughs> yep. you know, so, same here. But thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. It's my pleasure. (laughs) So I think that your life and your experiences, sort of like those uh, movies where they tell the story of an era through one person's perspective. I mean, you've been so deep in this so much of your life. I'd like to go through some of that, if that's all right with you. I mean, uh, for example, as a young man, when did you first become aware of the civil rights movement, of the impact of racism in America? What was it like growing up when you were a child in America? And, and how did that help shape your work in the civil rights movement over the years? Well, let's be honest. Look, I was impacted at the age of five years old when... I saw a Jet magazine photograph of Emmett Till's body at his uh, mm. at his funeral, and I'm looking at this horror and going, "What is that?" And then, even in that early stage, we used to uh, go down to Clarksdale, Mississippi, where my grandfather was from, and I would spend summers with my cousins there. And that stopped in large part because of Emmett Till. And then let's just keep moving forward. Where do you want me to go? The riots in the 60s and... Yeah, let's start there. I mean, we've we've got an hour. We've got plenty of elbow room here. I mean, in the 60s, I was very involved in the anti-war movement. I believe, as a teenager, I believe you were very involved in the civil rights movement, were you not? Well, no, no, we were involved in both because, you know, yeah. you, but, but see, this is, you can't, look, there's a difference. What you missed and what I said was a nugget of inferiority was planted in my mind at the age of five. 
And, and, then, and see, and that's what I think uh, white America needs to understand. When you have to, Dr. King talks about this, having to explain to his young children why they can't swim in the public swimming pool. And then that seed of negativity is planted in that child's mind. As a child growing up in my neighborhood in Dayton, Ohio, and again, a child, Saturday morning, I remember this like it was yesterday, we would all gather, maybe we're seven, eight years old, we would all gather at somebody's house and on a Saturday, early Saturday morning and watch cartoons. And we'd be all watching one TV, one TV, but there'd be four, five, six kids. And I never will forget, next door neighbor, a white family, they were just the nicest people. But some uncle walked into the uh, house and said, who are these little niggas on the rug? You're seven or eight years old. So I'm not prepared today to jump from Emmett Till to my age in college. But since you did, Mm -hmm. you have to remember it was Muhammad Ali who brought to my attention and to a lot of our attention that the Vietnam War was a situation where young African-Americans, sometimes if they got in trouble, the judge would give them a choice. Son, you can go to the army, which means you'll end up in Vietnam, or you can go to jail. We often forget that young black inner city youth were drafted or are sent to Vietnam disproportionately. So we ended up fighting on both fronts at the same time, which, by the way, if you recall, may have been one of the reasons that Dr. King was killed a year after his famous speech in 1967 about why he opposed the Vietnam War, because Hmm. the resources that were used to fight the Vietnam War were taken primarily from many of the social programs that Johnson had invested in. Yeah, remarkable stuff. We're talking with uh, Joe Madison, host of The Joe Madison Show, weekdays 6 to 10 a.m. on Sirius XM Channel 126. JoeMadison.com is his website. We'll be right back with our conversation with Joe Madison in just a moment. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And you can tweet Joe at Madison Sirius XM. Once again, it shows on Sirius XM Channel 126, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday. You can help America return to democracy by telling friends and family how to listen to this and other great progressive programs. Tag, you're it. So, Joe, I can imagine things, but, you know, growing up white in a, in a almost entirely white, well, actually, it was an entirely white neighborhood for at least half of my, you know, childhood. I don't have the experiences that you have had and hope to learn from your stories of that. How challenging was it growing up as a kid in, uh, now you were in an integrated neighborhood? No, no, it was nothing. Well, I mean, if you count the one white person that lived across the street who couldn't afford to move, when the neighborhood mm. changed. <laughs> I mean, yeah. one white person is integration, but you know, that's what tends to happen on both sides of that equation. You let two or three yep. black people move into an all white neighborhood and I'll be damned, it's integrated. What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> you, you know, and again, and once again, because remember, people forget they used to call it blockbusting. I remember a, a leader, a businessman, in my community growing up in Dayton, Ohio. He was the mortician, Clarence Bowman. And remember, in the black neighborhood, the mortician and the doctors and maybe the lawyers, depending on where you live, and the preachers, excuse me, were some of the most independent people in your neighborhood. But I always remember he moved out of the uh, traditional west side of Dayton, Ohio, 
and he moved into a all-white neighborhood. And it made big news. I mean big news. And he actually told a reporter, I don't want the next black family to move on the same block. And a lot of people didn't understand what he was saying. Matter of fact, they got rather angry. What do you mean you don't want them being your neighbor? And what he said, no, don't move on my block. Move on the block down the street. Move on a block in the next subdivision. Because, because if one black person moved in and two moved in, then what happened would be the real estate agents would get on the phone and call the white neighbors and white homeowners and say, you know, you might want to move. Uh, your home, your hmm. home values are going to go down. Well, why is that? Because black people are moving into the neighborhood. That happened actually happened to me when I uh, first uh, got to Detroit and I moved into quote unquote integrated neighborhoods. And I would actually get phone calls from white real estate agents who would say, "Would you think about selling your house? Uh, because you know the neighborhood is changing." Oh, jeez. Uh, okay. We'll continue the story in just a second. We'll, we'll be right back with Joe Madison, one of the most talented men on talk radio. JoeMadison.com is website. We'll be right back with more Joe Madison in just a moment. Stick around. So over at TomHartman.com, we put up a video that talks about Malcolm X saying, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are oppressed and loving the people who are the oppressors. He said that 55 years ago, in 1965. And, you know, what that actually means, how that warning from Malcolm X was apparently taken to heart by the Republican Party in 1981 through the Reagan presidency. And we actually saw this shift in America to the point where you know, that led to everything. I used stop and frisk and the demonization of homeless people and the demonization of poor people and, and black people and Muslim people and all of this stuff came out of this very specific kind of Lee Atwater strategy in the 1980s. So you can find it over at TomHartman.com and check it out. And welcome back. We're talking with Joe Madison, host of The Joe Madison Show, weekdays 6 to 10 a.m. on SiriusXM channel 126. JoeMadison.com is his website. Madison SiriusXM is Twitter handle. Joe, you and I were talking about uh, blockbusting, integrating neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and how that was how that was going on. The closest I ever got to that was uh, when Louise and I were moving to Atlanta back in 1983, I think it was. And Louise flew down, I flew down, looked at houses, and then Louise flew down and we had different real estate agents. And the real estate agent who picked Louise up said to Louise, would you like to see all white neighborhoods or integrated neighborhoods? And Louise said, I believe it's a crime for you to ask me that question and said, you know, stop the car, I'm getting out. Or maybe, you know, take me back to the real estate agent. I don't recall because I wasn't there. But that, you know, Louise was so pissed off at this woman that she fired the real estate agency. She later called the, the woman's boss. But that, I mean, you know, that's as close as we got to it. But you were talking about what it was like then. Frankly, I'm guessing in some parts of the country, it's very much like that right now. Oh, I'm, yeah, I certainly it is. But let, let me tell you what you just gave an example of the fast forward to where we are in 2021. What Louise did in 1983 is what we today refer to being anti-racist. Listen to me, being anti-racist. Because what she did, let me out. I'm not going to be a part of this. She could have said to that real estate agent, excuse me, I'm not racist. You know, I'm not racist. But she decided, not only am I not racist, but I am not going to do business with you. I am going to be anti-racist. And that's why I wanted to fast forward to how you brought the past, and I wanted to bring it up to today. People have to understand, sometimes... You cannot be racist and still benefit from racism. 
Think about oh, I'm that. sure that's the that's that's the that's the story of every white person's life in America, Joe, isn't it? That that's that's in in many cases, unless they have been, unless they speak about uh, unless they practice anti-racism, and there's a difference between saying I'm not racist and being anti-racist, uh, because I don't know how many people would do what Louise did. To be honest, they might dismiss it. Who knows? But that's what that said to me. But I can guarantee you, in your lifetime, you never had anyone call up and tell you some white people are in your neighborhood, so you might want to move. Right. Which happened to you? Only it wasn't white people. They, what, well, they and, when and, they called you and said they thought they thought you oh, were whiter. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and I pretended to be white. You know, I, I said really. Oh, well, tell me, well, uh, how many and what, you know, and got it, which, by the way, was illegal. And, and, and again, prior to the Housing Act, people could do that. And thank God for, you know, black people and white people coming together. You know, the, one of the ways that we were able, uh, Tom, to break up housing discrimination covenants was that white testers, had to go to a neighborhood to rent or buy a home. And then they came back and worked with organizations to begin blockbusting. And so that's what we are looking for, I think, in America today. In anticipation, Tom, of this conversation that uh, we were going to have, I'm prepared to say something that most people wouldn't say on Martin Luther King Day. And that is, we will never get rid of racism in America. Never. And I don't come to that conclusion lightly. Racism is like a virus. And you're one of the smartest people I know as a communicator, and I just finished reading your book on health care, but racism is a virus, and you do not kill a virus. Viruses are not killed. And let me tell you what they will often do. They will mutate. And that's what we saw last week on Capitol Hill, a bunch of mutants. There you go. Yeah, and let's extend that and get into Martin Luther King also right after the break. We'll be right back in about six minutes. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Our book today is The Poisoned City, Flint's Water and the American Urban Tragedy by Anna Clark. This is from the prologue. On a hot day in the summer of 2014, in the Civic Park neighborhood where Pastor R. Sherman McCathern preached in Flint, Michigan, water rushed out of a couple of fire hydrants. Puddles formed on the dry grass and splashed the skin of the delighted kids who ran through it. But the spray looked strange. The water was coming out dark as coffee for hours, McCathern remembered. 
The shock of it caught in his throat. Something is wrong here. Something had been wrong for months. That spring, Flint, under the direction of state officials, turned off the drinking water that it had relied on for nearly 50 years. The city planned to join a new regional system called the Carignodi Water Authority. And while it waited for the KWA to be built, it began bringing in its water from the Flint River. MacArthur didn't pay much attention to the politicking around all this. He had enough to worry about with his busy parish. But after the switch, many of his neighbors grew alarmed at the water that flowed from their kitchen faucets and shower heads. They packed public meetings, wrote questioning letters, and protested at City Hall. They filled clear plastic bottles in their taps to show how the water looked brown or orange and sometimes had particulates floating in it. Showering seemed to be connected with skin rashes and hair loss. The water smelled foul. A sip of it put the taste of a cold metal coin on your tongue. But the authorities said everything was all right and you could drink it, so people did, McCatherine said later. Residents were advised to run their faucets for a few minutes before using the water to get a clean flow. But as the months went by, the city plant tinkered with treatment and issued a few boil water advisories. State environmental officials said again and again that there was nothing to worry about. The water was just fine. Whatever their senses told them, whatever the whispers around town, whatever Flint's troubled history with powerful institutions telling them what was best for them, this wasn't actually hard for people like McCathern to believe. Public water systems are one of this country's most heroic accomplishments, a feat so successful that it's almost invisible. By making it a commonplace for clean water to be delivered to homes, businesses, and schools, we have saved untold lives from what today sound like antiquated diseases in a Charles Dickens novel, cholera, dysentery, typhoid fever. Here in Flint, it was instrumental in turning General Motors, founded in 1908 in Vehicle City, as the town was known, into a global economic giant. The advancing underground network of pipes defined the growing city and its metropolitan region, which boasted of being home to one of the strongest middle classes in the entire United States. McCatherine is a tall, bald man with a thin mustache and a scratchy rasp in his baritone voice. At the time of the water switch, he had led the non-denominational Joy Tabernacle Church for about 15 years. It was founded in the YMCA in downtown Flint, where it held baptisms in the swimming pool. But in 2009, it made a home in Civic Park, where a Presbyterian church closed after 85 years and gave its sanctuary over to the young and hopeful congregation. By then, Civic Park, one of America's oldest subdivisions, was a desert of deserted, historically significant homes, the pastor said. Built between 1917 and 1919 by General Motors and DuPont and Company, along curving, tree-lined boulevards, the tidy houses were designed for Flint's auto workers and their families. But over the years, the neighborhood was blighted by vacancy. Empty two-stories with lurching front porches and crumbling roofs sat alongside crisply painted homes where Flint residents, they sometimes call themselves Flintoids or Flintstones, still live their lives. When the sound of gunshots on the street outside interrupted services, McCatherine gave a nod to the church musicians, urging them to play louder. Some called Joy Tabernacle a thug church, he said, but McCatherine saw the good. The young men filling his pews built a proud society, if not by getting their names on the honor roll, then by tagging their names with spray paint. In the end, people just want to be seen. The ghosts of the past went well beyond Civic Park. Between General Motors and the United Auto Workers, the city had been a flourishing hub for American innovation. There were more than 100 different manufacturing establishments in town. Ten of them employed at least 1,000 people each. And they not only made automobiles, but paints, varnishes, tools, dyes, cotton, textiles, and a wealth of other products. Flint had one of the highest per capita incomes in the entire nation. And despite being severely segregated, it was a magnet for African-American migrants from the South. When Vice President Hubert Humphrey stopped by during the campaign for the 1964 presidential election, he praised Flint for, quote, zooming ahead with unbelievable growth and progress. Workers earned wages that are very good, Humphrey said, and, quote, because of the great labor management program in the community over many years, there has been a constant rise in the standard of living, end quote. Away from the assembly lines and the executive suites, the people of Flint felt that the city just shouldn't be a place to work. It should also be a place to thrive. Charles Stuart Mott, an auto pioneer who became GM's single largest stockholder and three-term mayor, created a nationally renowned community schools program that provided education, skills-building workshops, and social services. The book, 
the poison city. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. We're talking with Joe Madison, the Black Eagle, over on Sirius XM 126, 6 a.m. to 10 a.m., Monday through Friday, Eastern Time, of course. JoeMadison.com, the website, Madison Sirius XM, the Twitter handle. As we hit the break there, you were talking about how we're never going to get rid of racism in America and how it's like a virus. You know, we have succeeded in containing some viruses. How do we best contain or eliminate the impacts of racism so that, uh, you know, basically racists are left to mumbling to themselves, but there's not much they can do in the public square? Let's go back. I think we first have to agree. It can be equated to a virus. And, you know, we I think it's a misnomer when we say we're going to kill this this virus, this COVID-19. No. That virus will always be with us. Now, what you have to do is that you have to, and you ask the question, you have to contain it so that it doesn't become mainstream. And you have to be able to look at all your institutions. Let's take the institution we're part of, and that is media, the media platform. The media media has been and is still engaged in engineering hate. Look at what has just happened with now with the discussion about Facebook. All of a sudden, what, Facebook has gotten religion? And what they allowed Fox, what Fox was allowed to perpetrate, you have to constantly, constantly prevent it from becoming mainstream. Because what happens is that racism will attach itself to any institution, any entity that it can. It penetrates into the very psychic of people, and then it replicates itself. So, you know, instead of a mob wearing white hoods and robes, you got some guy with a helmet with horns wearing fur and mega cats and that's how you fight it you have to do what scientists do with a virus you always have to look for an antidote um and you and you have to engage everyone in that fight we must prevent it from becoming mainstream but let me tell you it's always going to be with us. I, it is It is in the DNA of the United States of America. And I know that's not the most popular thing to say on a, on a day uh, that we honor a man who talked about love and brotherhood and sisterhood. But I think if you go back and you read his last speech, uh, Been to the Mountaintop, A lot of people always get stuck on the climax of that speech, but they should go back and reread it and and listen to it. He talks about boycotting Coca-Cola, seal test, and most people don't even know what seal test ice cream is. Um, He talked about we may have to use these different mechanisms in order to... um, in order to make sure it doesn't get into into the mainstream of America. But, Tom, it is part of our DNA, um, and, uh, and I just think we, we just have to always be on the lookout uh, on, on how to uh, prevent it uh, from spreading. Dr. King had uh, specific suggestions, and, uh, in addition to calling out racism, but you know, nonviolence—the nonviolence of, of Jesus, essentially, Gandhi in a more modern era—was kind of his uh, polar star, it seems. There were a number of other people. Malcolm X, for example, had somewhat different solutions. Um, how, how do you see? What do you think is the best strategy for? Um, and, and not just for the African-American community, for, but for their white allies and, and, and of all races across the country in America well, to, well, to well, work well, toward this goal, Joe. 
let's go back to to a point you you bring up Malcolm X. That Malcolm X, you you got to remember, uh, Malcolm X evolved, and folk always you know know about there was a younger Malcolm X, and then there was the Shabazz, the Malcolm X, who also gave a great speech that talked about the ballot or the bullet. He didn't say mm-hmm. the ballot and the bullet. So that was the answer. That's the answer to your question. Look at the power that the ballot had in 2020. Talk about whether Donald Trump is going crazy. And no, it isn't about is he going crazy. He was crazy before he became president. And look mm-hmm. at what he did. Look at what happened because of Pennsylvania. Let's just deal with it. Philadelphia, Detroit, uh, Michigan, Detroit, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and Georgia, Atlanta. What did they all have in common? The power of the ballot. And by the way, not a shot was fired. Not a, a person was killed or stampled. Not a policeman was run over. And so, therefore, when you ask what changes is the power of the ballot, which changes public policy, and which is an antidote to those who, in fact, would perpetrate the mutation of racism. And, and think about this. Racism has mutated to the founders saying that black people are three-fifths human beings, which really was a power move because the South had more black folk in their states than they had white people. So it was, a new, it was arithmetic uh, to now to the Klan with hoods, and they came into existence because black people in the South, because of Reconstruction, was gaining political control, and to now where you have these white supremacists who then take over the capital. So the politics now has to be that we hold these people accountable every last single one of them and my position is you give them no quarters you give them no quarter because we all know that and you've said it i've said it when black lives matter was thinking of last summer about a uh not last summer but i guess a couple summers ago whenever it was about holding a rally and a, a couple of hundred people were going to show up They turned out that not only the National Guard, but the National Guard was armed. So this is the solution. You're never going to kill. Look, the polio virus, the smallpox virus, the plague, those viruses still exist. All it takes is the right condition, the right condition, and it will sprout again. It It will infect. And we just have to be honest about it and it infects every institution in our human existence from religion to politics to education to media you name it i don't think maybe with the exception of antarctica that there is a continent where racism doesn't exist you've lived in germany you know what you know what 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 it what is like, and you know what the Germans sure. did after World War II to try to eradicate. And look what happened. It it it, it did what? It mutated and popped yeah. up again. Um, but it it seems to me that Trump has uh, unleashed this virus in a whole brand new way. And uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on on how bad, how much impact, you know, how many young people, for example, coming up now have been infected with the racist, with the virus of racism as a, as a consequence of the Trump presidency and Stephen Miller and all these guys. Uh, we'll be back with Joe Madison in just a moment. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We're talking with uh, civil and human rights activist Joe Madison, the host of the Joe Madison Show weekdays, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Sirius XM 126.
On Science Revolution this week, will AI robots destroy the human race? And why does AI intelligence bond more with the far right? John Noel from Greenpeace USA is here on how he thinks big oil and gas funded the attempted coup on January 6th. Latricia Adams of Black Millennials for Flint drops by saying, finally, charges on the Flint water crisis. It's been more than six years since the Flint water crisis began when the children of Flint were poisoned by lead and by their governor. Plus, in our geeky science, there's a new study out, and guess what? Eating chili peppers could add years to your life and could cut your risk of cancer and heart disease. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. So, Joe, it seems to me that Trump has set this entire country back something on the order of 50 or 60 years, not just with regards to race, but with regards to a whole bunch of stuff, you know, science denial and know-nothingism and, you know, the introduction of violence and brutality as a tool of politics and just all kinds of stuff. What's your sense of the impact of this and how is it differently impacting, you know, white folks and people of color across the country? Okay, and when we come back, I'll just answer it. But it, it, I think what yeah. it has done, it has forced them like we did in the 60s, 50 years ago. you got to make a choice as to what side you're on, who you identify with. I think that's one of the benefits. There is no room for neutrality in this situation. No one can be neutral in what happened last week. You can't be neutral. You know, Dante, you know, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who maintain a position of neutrality during a time of moral crisis. And I think that's what Donald Trump has forced this country to deal with, and particularly the Republican Party. You just can't be neutral. Not in the face of what we just saw. Um, no, they're sure trying. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, oh, it's, I know. It's somewhere between I funny know. and pathetic, you know? It, well, it's, it, well, it's funny because we laugh to keep from crying. But, I mean, yeah. I think that's one of the positive aspects. But it's not going to happen overnight. And it's going to take time to root. It took, look, it took a damn near 50 years did it not to root the Dixiecrats out of the Democratic Party? Yeah, true. It took it took and, it took fifty years, and a bunch of them just became Republicans. <laughs> and, know, they became, Thurman, and they became Eastland. Republicans. They, and that's what I said. They you rooted them out, of the, and then they re, and then they transplanted <laughs> themselves. <laughs> And uh, thanks yeah. to uh, what's his name with the Southern strategy, uh, you know, yeah, the Nixon. Southern strategy was about and Lee Atwater. Uh, uh, yep. Lee Atwater. That's the person that I'm, I'm thinking about. Lee Atwater. You know, yeah. Lee Atwater just simply transplanted them over, over there. Yeah, and and he did a very effective job at it, and and. Uh, you know, thank God David Korn found that audio of him, uh, you know, just basically laying it oh, out to yeah. people. Yeah. I play it now. It's, I play it all, all the time. But yeah. Are we I, back it, or are we taking a break? Okay, Joe Madison is with us. We'll be back. Joe's uh, Twitter handle is MadisonSiriusXM. You can find his website at JoeMadison.com. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu 
slash podcast. Joe Madison on the line with us, the Black Eagle with uh, Sirius XM Channel 126, 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern every single weekday for many, many years now. Civil and human rights activist JoeMadison.com is his website, his Twitter handle, MadisonSiriusXM. Be sure to check him out, follow him, say hi. So, Joe, Donald Trump began his campaign with racism. I mean, his entire life has been about racism from the time he was a, a kid working for his dad and writing the letter C for colored on, on uh, rental applications. But he yeah. began his campaign with racism. He's been explicitly racist throughout. He's now, his latest racist, you know, hand grenade has been, uh, you know, ar- arguing that uh, Joe Biden didn't win by seven million votes. Uh, those were all uh, fraudulent votes in large African American dominant cities. You know, Detroit and Philadelphia right. and, and uh, right. Milwaukee right. and whatnot. I mean, it's just a continuous thread throughout there. How is this? How much impact do you think this is going to have? How far back has that? This has has the four years of the Trump presidency set America. What kind of impact is this having on young people? Um, of all races. Uh, well, well, you know, I got to tell you, when you asked that question before the break, I wanted everybody to stop for a moment and look at the look at the mob. You didn't see old, white-haired, blue-haired women on crutches and in, in handicapped scooters trying to break into the Capitol. These were young white people, male and female, climbing the walls, breaking down the doors. That those are those are young people. My goodness. So so, so and I'm I'm kinda laughing to keep from crying because it really answers your question. Those are people mm. who are in their twenties and their thirties. So understand they're gonna live maybe thirty, fifty more years. And God forbid that they educate their children. But can you imagine if you saw your father or your mother? But let, why am I saying this? Wait a minute. The, 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 the Zip uh, handcuff guy, his mother mm-hmm. just got arrested. You know, the, the, in, in Kenosha, the mother drove a 17-year-old with a gun, a loaded gun, who ended up shooting people. And they didn't even live in the state of 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 wisconsin um how long does uh, you know the impact once again it depends on uh, you know uh, the education man and and who does the educating um what dr martin luther king great quote and i use it all the time and it's not the i have a dream speech dr king said and he has a book of sermons and dr king said that the two most dangerous things on the planet are sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. And that's what we're, that's, again, that's what keeps perpetuating uh, what we're seeing. That's the mutation. Sincere ignorance. People just don't know. They just don't know. And, and they're not taught. Uh, the history they're, they're not you you do a great job at educating your audience about things we didn't that, that, that not what not what the history books taught us but but you know what people had to read beyond textbooks that are often chosen because they miseducate people but then what Donald Trump put, played on what Donald Trump played on and 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 he really said it before he ran and that is since uh, conscientious stupidity. But and now here, remember, he said, "I love." Remember, I love the poorly educated. Yeah, he said that. I love the poorly educated. We are the smartest people. That is a combination of what Dr. King warned us of. It is a combination of sincerity sincere ignorance. I love those who don't know. And I get to to use conscientious stu- uh, uh, stupidity to convince them of, of, of my way of, of thinking. And then, of course, he has disciples like 
blue dolls, bots, uh, and, and, and these second-tier conservative right-wing talk personalities who dominate our platform. Yeah, it is, it seems to me that the, the, the Trump has planted some deep roots that should never have been put there. Then use pesticide to get rid of. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Time to bring out the, the weed spray. Uh, Joe Madison, if you, if you have not checked out Joe Madison's show on SiriusXM channel 126, 6 to 10 a.m., and you can also you know, get it on the SiriusXM app and on the Internet, you must. JoeMadison.com, Madison SiriusXM. Joe, thanks so much for dropping by. Happy Martin Luther King Day to you and Sherry. And God bless. God bless. Thank you, sir. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Black Panthers, Portraits from an Unfinished Revolution, edited by uh, Brian Shea and Yohuro Williams. This is from Chapter 1, In Defense of Self-Defense, Pathways to the Black Panther Party. People joined the Black Panther Party for many different reasons. The moment of politicization was different for everyone, but a few were commonly shared, including the 1963 bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and the 1965 Watts Urban Rebellion. A more general sense of frustration and alienation compelled others to join the Panthers' ranks. The party exerted enormous pull on the imagination of the members, especially those who had experienced police brutality. In the rebellious spirit of the times, the party's bold stance on self-defense resonated with those seeking fresh alternatives for achieving social justice and black liberation. Party members expressed a deep appreciation for other aspects of the Panthers program, including its community service programs, which grew out of a genuine love for the people. My neighborhood friend, a sister that I've known since I was about 11 years old, said, Claudia, I want you to go with me. We're gonna go and hear these Panthers speak at PS 92 which was an elementary school in our community. I said, okay, I'll go, I'm down. I listened to these brothers speak and I heard the pitch. I saw the determination and I saw the compassion. I thought, wow, this is the feeling that I used to get when I went into clubs and popped my fingers and got on the dance floor. It was the same feeling, except it was bigger for me now. It was bigger than me. It was full of love of the people. No longer did we have to argue and fight about what are you looking at me like that for? Or don't step on my sneaker, or this is my block. Now we really had something to fight for. We had a people to fight for. This is bigger than any gang or club. We had a goal. We had something to look forward to, which was the betterment of black people. It was most definitely something that I was searching for, but I didn't yet know that I was searching. I didn't find it. It fell on me. That was the first meeting. That's what actually started the wheels in my mind for me to become political. I was rank and file. I did a lot of things. The easiest way to say it is just to imagine worker bees. You got one queen, everyone else works. Rank and file, those were the worker bees. We did it all. The one thing I enjoyed the most was teaching the political education classes on 7th Avenue in front of the Harlem office. That was the most fruitful. But anything I did, it was for the love of the people. Wherever I was, wherever I was sent, or whatever I had to do, it didn't matter anymore because it was for the love of the people. We were trying to get the word out. If I had to sell 125 papers in a, in a day and I got close to that goal, then I did a good job. I was originally from Queens and came out of the Corona branch of the Black Panther Party. When the Panther 21 were arrested and went to jail, in order to keep those offices open and functioning, Panthers were sent all over the city to Harlem. I was one of the Panthers that ended up in the Harlem branch. That's how I got to be there on Wednesday nights to give the PE classes, the political education classes. I was extremely nervous the first time, but once I found my voice, then it went like clockwork. A lot of the people in the community who were just walking by were like, well, let me stop and see what this little girl is talking about, because I was indeed a little girl at that time. We started off every PE class with a 10-point program, and we ended every PE class with, okay, let me hear from you guys. What do you want to see different in your community, and how are you living? Then we would get the feedback, and then we would know how to concentrate our efforts. Rent strikes were crazy, because if you had to live like that, why should you pay rent? We did clothing drives, we did food drives, we did, of course, the breakfast program. There were a lot of other things that happened, and they might have been more meaningful, but those PE classes stayed with me. We were outside on the street in front of the office. 
When you were giving a class or you were having a talk inside the office and there were only Panthers around you, the feeling was just different than outside on the street. The Panthers knew what you were doing because they were Panthers and they were doing the same thing. Outside, there were constant questions and answers with the people. You had to give yourself up when you were outside in that crowd. You never knew who was going to say, we don't care about that, we don't care about you, you need to go away. There were a lot of people that just did not know where we were coming from and were afraid that if they were seen in the office or if they were seen asking questions, that they'd get reprisals, that they'd end up getting hurt. They were afraid. Things went so fast. Time seems to accelerate when you're always looking over your shoulder. At this time, it was all-out war against the Panthers, and brothers are being shot down in the street or set up or going to jail for years. We have brothers in jail since that time, 40, 41 years. We've had brothers that we've lost on the inside that we can't let the world forget. The government said, okay, we're going to lock them up and throw away the key and no one will ever care. But it's not true. We want them out. We want freedom for all political prisoners. We don't want any more of them to die on the inside. That's the biggest injustice. There were times when our cadre consisted of almost nothing but women. And that was when the brothers were locked up or had to go underground. I remember being on a front line against a policeman on horseback and being six months pregnant. What we wanted was a simple street light. And we got the community out there and we blocked traffic. I didn't know whether I was going to be trampled, my baby killed, but I knew I had to be there. I was an active member of the party from 1968 to 1971, and in those few years, I aged 10, 15 years. We didn't have much time to be little girls. We went straight to womanhood. Talking about these things is bringing up all of these feelings, though I hadn't thought about or touched on them for a long time. It seems that as you get older and you look back on the things that you've done in your life, you say, oh my God, I could have gotten killed then. When you're young, fear is not really in your vocabulary, and once you look back, you wonder, why wasn't I afraid? We didn't have much time to be afraid. It was all about survival. The Black Panthers. Tom Hartman here with you. Judith is the attorney and executive director of the Advancement Projects National Office, advancementproject.org. And uh, the Twitter handle is ADV underscore project. And uh, Judith Brown Dianas, welcome to the program. Tell us about the black women who paved the way from mm. where we are now. And also your thoughts about where we're at now. What lessons mm -hmm. do we have to learn from this? Thanks, Tom, for having me again. So, yes, I think, you know, we're celebrating Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And at this time, this, this is an inflection moment for our country to think about the progress that we have made. But also, you know, we are in a moment where there are people who don't want any more progress. In fact, they'd like to take us backwards. So, you know, when I look back, you know, we're getting ready to swear in the first woman as a vice president, and she is is a black woman and a South Asian. And when she stands on the shoulders of many who came before her, you know, black women have been involved in the suffrage movement, Ida B. Weld and others. And then if you think about people like Mary McLeod Bethune, who did registration in Florida, and then the, you know, the people who, like a Fannie Lou Hamer, who was a woman who was a sharecropper, who was recruited to do, to vote, first of all, and then became an activist and became a very powerful force in Mississippi and national, along with Ella Baker, who was an architect of our civil rights movement. So there's, you know, there are so many women who have really built the way, when you think about also a Shirley Chisholm, first black woman to run for president, Barbara Jordan, who was just a powerhouse of a state legislator and then in Congress. And so this is a great moment for us to have moved to, but we have a lot of difficulties ahead in terms of uniting our country. This is the first time that a president is taking office in the midst of a global pandemic. And so there is a lot of work that needs to be done. But then on the issues of racial justice, we have a lot of work to do in this country. While hate is on the rise at the same time, the systems of oppression and structural racism have continued 
to oppress people of color in this country, um, from the policing issues that we have seen play out to voting rights. Right? We still we still have to fix the Voting Rights Act, and so there's there's a lot for us to do. Um, but you know, when I think about this moment. I think about the persistence of the people, and I think there is a saying that we are a country that we are not yet, right? Like America is still building the America that it wants to be, and so let's keep building. Talk a little bit about the relationships between public policy and individuals' hearts, as it were. How society changes over time, how individuals become less racist as a consequence of policy essentially forcing Mm -hmm. society to be less racist. So I would say that both have to happen, right? So we have seen over the past several months, we've taken down a lot of the monuments um, that that lift up um, white supremacy in this country. And those symbols are important. Um, They are important for those who still believe in the Confederacy and white supremacy, and they are important for those who are fighting it. And so being able to take those down is important because we need to show that this is not what this country is about, right? And so we have to lean into the hearts and minds. We have to lean into making sure that we have have curriculum in our schools that tell children the truth about our racist past, right? Um, But give them something else to, to look forward to and to build. And at the same time, unfortunately, the policies are the ways in which structural racism um, continues to have a hold on communities of color. And so our policies have got to keep in step. And so um, opportunities are not granted to people because of those structures. You know, when we think about the pandemic, um, black people were not more vulnerable because they don't eat well, black people are more vulnerable because they don't have access to health care in the ways that other people do. They don't have access to healthy foods in the way other people do. And so, and those come from policies. And so our policies have to match our values. What are the policies that would be at the top of your agenda for the incoming Biden administration moving forward? So first, there's the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that I am sure President Biden is behind and and is is ready to move, and Congress needs to move that, right? And so that will give us back the tools to make sure that people have access to the ballot, because what we do know is that while we saw increased turnout of people of color this year, we are starting to see states already proposing legislation to make it harder to vote. They want to get rid of mail-in ballots. They want to get rid of drop boxes. All of those things that we know, if we make voting easier for people, they will participate. And so I want to make sure that, that we do that. We also, this Department of Justice has got to be strong on things like redistricting and policing. We have not had a Department of Justice for the last four years that really has taken on the issue of racist systemic policing. And I'm not talking about the bad apples. I'm talking about the culture and the policies of policing that allows police officers to get away with killing black people. Um, And so those are two things. But then, I mean, the pandemic. We have children who are going to be returning to school um, who have Um, who are suffering probably from depression and PTSD because they've been surrounded by death and illness. And so we need to really um, make sure that we invest in public education, that we have a Marshall Plan for our schools where schools can become places of of learning and love Um, because that's where we know we get to start off our children right in terms of their values and their ability to think about this multiracial democracy that we're building. And so I think those are are some of the things that I would love to see um, move. But I mean, this administration also has to do a lot of backtracking. Um, because there were a lot of policies and little rules and regulations that most Americans don't know about that the Trump administration got rid of, including things like teachings and training internally to the to the government around things critical race theory um, and things around intersectionality and racism and white supremacy. The Trump administration got rid of that training um, in all federal government agencies, and so. The 
fact that they couldn't even talk about racism and couldn't train about racism is a problem. And so there, 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 this administration has got to go in, you know, full throttle on undoing the pain and the hurt that the last four years brought us, but also thinking about what is the progressive agenda that we need so that we all can thrive and that we are all free in this country. Yeah, it seems like we saw on January 6th the consequences of all this writ large. It's it's just extraordinary. But I just want to thank you, Judith Brown Dianas, for dropping by today and for the great work you're doing with the Advancement Project. Advancementproject.org is the website. ADV underscore project is the Twitter handle. Judith Brown Dianas, thank you again for dropping by. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 